This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Have you ever tried a Kind Bar? You might have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients that you can recognize and pronounce. And if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we have a special deal for you. You can try 10 Kind Bars for free. All you have to do is pay shipping. When you order the sample box, you'll also get to try Kind's Snack Club, where you'll receive monthly snacks at a discount and members-only bonuses. Kind snacks are made in the United States and they are delicious. And I swear they have something for every palate. They have sweet stuff. If you like sweet, I am someone who likes a sweet and savory combination. And they have that too. They have sweet cayenne, roasted jalapeno, and Korean chili flavored bars. Uh, If you want your traditional granola bar, you can do that too. They are all made from high quality, nutrient dense ingredients like whole nuts and whole grains. And you shouldn't have to choose between your health and taste when it comes to snacking. That's why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. Now, again, I have tried their 10 snack sample box. I personally went for the stuff that maybe sounds a little weird, like jalapeno granola bar. Uh, My husband liked the sea salt and almond and chocolate and whatnot, your more traditional granola snacks. They're all delicious. And again, they all are good for you. Uh, And Kind is just a great company. They do a lot of charitable giving. I recommend that you look them up. And if you want to pick up your free sample box, go to kindsnacks.com slash friends. Again, that's kindsnacks.com slash friends. We thank Kind for sponsoring this podcast. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you support this podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about difficult conversations, messy coalitions, and the limits and possibilities of relationships. This week is a twofer, uh, two favorites of the show, Ira Madison III, who is a Crooked Media contributor and also a writer for The Daily Beast and GQ. He is going to join me for a wide-ranging discussion of some of this week's news. I'm going to be super honest and tell you that we were going to talk about something really specific and write in the, uh, with friends like these, wheelhouse, but, you know... It was a, it was such a slow news week. No, but so much has happened. Uh, we decided kind of just to do a check in about a lot of this stuff. You will want to stay tuned for that. And then 
uh, is an interview with Bob Inglis, who is a former congressman from South Carolina, now the executive director of RepublicIn.org, which is RepublicEN.org. He is a conservative evangelical Christian who believes in climate change and that we should do something about it. So I went to him for some insight on how to change uh, base conservative voters' minds. He's something of an expert at it these days, or at least it's his mission to do so uh, regarding climate change. And he was willing to talk about what it might take to change someone's mind about, say, Roy Moore. And for obvious reasons, the conversation about changing people's minds about Roy Moore turned into a conversation about changing people's minds about Trump. And then for non-obvious reasons, we wound up talking about his support for the Affordable Care Act, which is just so unexpected, I decided to leave it in the interview. But up first, Ira. So, Ira, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, I, well, I want to talk to you about everything, but I guess the excuse to have you on is this column that you wrote about late night comedy as maybe not the ideal place to be having some of the conversations we're having right now. Yeah, you know, it's um, about the fact that this past year, late night has become sort of like what a lot of people see as like the resistance, you know, hashtag, a lot of people. Hashtag resistance. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people watch late night um, from all across America, you know, and so these hosts are coming into people's homes at night and they're, you know, sort of preaching to the choir a bit, maybe in the younger audience, but there are still people who I think are getting informed um, on politics and things from late night hosts. And when it was just sort of them against Trump, um, it was sort of, you know, fine. We were commending a lot of people for just, you know, even speaking up about Trump at all, you know, especially when um, during the election, you know, he was sort of treated like a joke by a lot of the comedians. And then um, they sort of like hunkered down and got really serious. You know, Seth Myers is really serious about him now. Yeah. And and Seth Myers does like news segments basically about Trump. Yeah. Yeah. But now that um, Hollywood has sort of started to replicate a lot of the stuff that was going on with Trump before, you know, when the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, it led to Kevin Spacey and now to um, Louis Louis C.K. And it's just, it's showing the sort of limitations of late night right now because where they could sort of be gung-ho about, you know, really going after Trump, um, there's sort of a trepidation with going after, you know, the people that they... um, They know and like? They know and like, you know, they're friends with him. You know, Louis C.K. gave Stephen Colbert, like... His job on the Dana Carvey show when Louis C.K. was a head writer. Conan O'Brien, when he had the late um, show, um, Louis C.K. was a writer on it, you know? So it's like these people have deep, um, years-long friendships with him, you know? And they might have been able to make, like, Harvey Weinstein jokes because, like, none of these men are, like, movie people. You know, they were the TV and, like, stand-up comedy circuit. Um but when we're getting into people like CK who are like basically in their world, um, they didn't, you know, get to they didn't really attack him mm. adequately, you know, as far as what I found. And I found that the only people who did so far, um, I haven't had a chance to watch this week's Samantha B yet. 
Um, and I don't know how far they film in advance, but um, I do know that um, Colbert mentioned him briefly, but mostly used it, um, you know, as a joke to not really attack Lewis, be like, you know, he was like, oh, God's like, oh, my God, I used to be a fan of him. And then he used it as like a segue into a joke about Keith Urban's dumb <laughs> um, female song. Um, and then Trevor Noah and um, Jordan Klepper sort of really were the only two people who did that. I, you know, I, uh, shout out to Jordan Klepper's show, which I have come to enjoy. I did not think I would like it, but uh, me either. Uh, but I, um, I find because I, you know, wasn't a huge fan of his sort of persona on The Daily Show, to be honest. Right. Uh, but I think it works better for him in this show. Yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, it is very much like the sequel to The Colbert Report, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, it's, though. <laughs> it is it is funny. The Colbert Report was funny, too. But it's for people that don't know, he's basically taken on the persona of like an Alex Jones host. Yeah, in I the just same, remember from that. Yeah, in the same way that Colbert was kind of a Bill O'Reilly, mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, but I, and it makes sense to do something like that now, you know? Oh, totally, totally. I, I, so I think there's an interesting way to a larger conversation in, in your points about late night, which is what do we do when the things we decry come for us, right? Mm-hmm. What do we do when the people who need to suffer consequence are our allies. Yeah, the call's coming from inside the house. Right. And um, and uh, I'm sitting here in Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, thinking about Al Franken. Uh, yes. And, whoa. Like, it shouldn't be hard for me to say anything about this, because if, I, I know, I'm going to call out my own hypocrisy. I know that if it was... Um, I don't know, like, who's kind of a bad Republican senator? (laughs) Um, Any of them? Any of them, right. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, You know, if it was Mitch Uh, McConnell, if it was Mitch McConnell. Rick McConnell, Rubio, you know, any of these people. I would be pretty pretty quick. Pretty quick. Yeah. (laughs) And also there's reason now it's and it's not just total hypocrisy, right? Because with some of those guys, um, the, the Republican uh, senators, there's more than just uh, yeah. so grabbing involved I'm, to object I'm really to. interested in your thoughts on this um, because mine might be a little bit controversial. Oh, um, interesting. Well, let's let's go at it. This is the uncomfortable conversation. Um, okay. So at first, uh, I was like, okay, this the investigation. That's a good idea. Let's just get it all out in the open. Yeah. And then after talking about it with some people uh, and actually sort of revisiting some of my own experiences around this, Mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? No, he should resign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I think that's that's fair. Because for me, the problem in our culture of uh, abetting sexual predation, a culture that allows for harassment and abuse and this kind of comedy, so-called comedy, the problem with it is that, well, there's a lot of problems, but the thing that is pervasive is that men get away with it. They suffer no consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a start, there there need to be consequences. And losing your job is not the same as going to prison. It's not the same as losing money. It's not the same as losing your family. It's not the same. It's It's a job. It's a privilege. 
And so I think that, uh, I think that that would be fair. So that's, that's where I am. Where are you? Um, I was sort of teetering between that position and the sort of finding the resigning, um, just all the calls to be like for him to resign today just felt largely outsized to me because I feel like if we take some time and let him think about this, yes. And he's like, you know, if he were to say exactly what you said um, and state it in that way, and then he resigns, um, I would find that beautiful, you know, but um, largely today it felt like so many people, um, or liberals and Democrats being like, uh, oh, you have to resign, you have to resign, this and that. And I feel like so much of it is um, in this continued nature of us to try and appear as if we're morally better Mm. than Republicans and conservatives. Um, Because on one hand, you have them, yes, you know, like making excuses for Roy Moore, you know, and like, But there's also the difference in that, like, Franken wasn't, you know, raping 14-year-old girls, you know? Oh, Um, there's definitely an order of magnitude difference. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a magnitude of a difference. And I feel like even if we do these things, we're like, people today, like, I am very pro um, the recent spate of articles where people are like, um, you know, we really need to revisit um, these Bill Clinton yeah. Um, allegations, you know, because um, I've forever thought that, um, you know, him being in public life is sort of wild. Um, yeah, and I people was a go huge... back and listen to last week's episode with Rebecca Traister. Yeah. Anyone who already hasn't that we talk all about that. Yeah. And I thought he was a burden on Hillary. For Definitely. The but, um, you know, I think there's a difference in thinking like, so we get so we make Franken resign um, and then it's just sort of like. It's sort of like I feel like the people saying they want that to happen, so many of them think that this is going to magically um, make the right change Mm. their tactics and be like, oh, you know what? They did it and they're moral people. Um, Let's ask Roy Moore to resign. And they won't, you know? And it's, it's so many of them are going after... Franken today too, and it's like you've literally spent the past two weeks defending more. And let's look at all the allegations against the president. You know, oh, it's yeah. just there's this there's this this weird thing where um I want us to be able to do what's right, but we're also in this constant war um where trying to look good isn't going to help us. Because what's going to help us is a majority in the Senate and the House. Right. So, for example, if if Franken resigns, that puts that seat at risk for some later impeachment trial. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. And I see that. And I also want people to resist um, framing whatever their feelings are about Franken around. Um, we need to do this so that Republicans do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because that is not going to work. <laughs> it's never worked. It's never worked. <laughs> um, and I'm also going to say, you know, uh, two things. One is that I'm willing to be convinced that I am I am wrong in my opinion that he should step down. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and you do make a good case. I also want to point out that um, more could happen. True. Absolutely. Uh, and our discussion that we're having on a Thursday afternoon, uh, so far there's only been one incident that's reported out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're both basing our opinions on that one sort of person's account. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all of these people are like Pandora's box at this point. You know, <laughs> like you open it and something slips out, but then it's like you leave the room and you come back and. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the gremlins. Yeah, like it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it that's totally what it is. Um, I, I, I think that we should be thinking about this uh, in terms of actually the woman that that has the story about him, Leanne uh, Tweeden. Mm-hmm. She said something I think very smart about this, which is that she's not. She said she's personally not interested in him necessarily being expelled or resigning, which is her prerogative to not have an opinion on that. Um, mm-hmm. She said what she thinks needs to happen is not so much women coming forward, but people who have committed these abuses or um, misconduct to start reexamining their behavior that they thought was okay. It's now now maybe looking back, they realize it's not okay. And I do think that needs to be part of what's happening, that what happened with Franken would, would be great is if he could be someone that would lead a conversation or lead by example, you know what, I did that stuff and mm-hmm. I need to be I need to somehow be held responsible for it. I realize now it was wrong. You know, absolutely. I like Franken. And I do, I too. He's, that- he's hilarious. And he, I've met him a few times and he's, you know, awesome to talk with. I think that that is um, definitely something that we need right now, Um, because right now it's a lot of women having to do the work. Um, And I definitely think that, um, you know, it's time for um, if he were to resign and make that sort of his new mission, um, more power to that, you know, because that's something that we desperately need. I did a piece recently um you know, with a sex therapist um, talking about, um, you know, what sort of treatment that, you know, men like Weinstein and Spacey could get. Because these are like extreme offenders. And the sex therapist was also gay. And so he and I had this conversation (laughs) just sort of about how um, that's even something that like I found myself talking about with other gay friends. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a situation of sort of, um, you know, like, not to say it doesn't happen to women, but um, most of the time we, I feel like we understand, you know, like if you were in a straight bar um, and a guy was walked past you at the bar and thought you were attractive and was like, started groping you. Right. The person you're with would say something, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, you think a bartender or someone nearby would be like, oh, this guy's a creep. Like everyone sort of thinks in their mind. This guy is a whether or not they do anything, the sort of mindset is this is unacceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but whereas in our bars, you know, there are often sometimes where like a guy will like do that to another guy. Um, and now and for the longest, we've just sort of accepted that, you know, we're all men, we can handle it, etc. But now that we're having these bigger conversations and opening things up and talking about, you know, how we've sort of ingrained pieces of culture into us. Um, some people are speaking out about how they're not, you know, okay, not okay know, with like it. If they're, yeah, you know, and it's like you would think that the conversation before was, you know, like 
yes, we're all men. We're sort of gay. Not sort of gay. We're all men. We're, we're all gay. men. We're very we're, gay. We're very, yes, very we're all, gay. <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea was that we had all sort of been more, quote unquote, open about right. sexuality. And you, get to be, and you get to be sexual. That's actually, yes. I understand that part of the rhetoric, you know, and, yeah. and that part of the journey of, you know, that, you know, subculture yeah. is to and get to celebrate sexuality. Yeah. Than sort of straight people. That's always sort of the, yeah. you know, thesis, the thing that people put out there. Um, but it's coming down to the point where it's like, yeah, but also that doesn't mean that, you know, someone else's body is your, um, it's your prerogative to be able to just touch them at will. Right. But also consent, by the yes. way. Yes. By the way, consent. Consent. You know, that's a conversation that I think a lot of people in the gay community are having right now about consent. Um, and I think it's a larger conversation about just men in general, you know, because I think a lot of that behavior is very similar to how straight men feel. Yeah. There are a lot of online mattress retailers popping up these days, all with a one size fits all solution to better sleep. But guess what? One size does not fit all. Helix Sleep offers something that doesn't exist anywhere else, a mattress personalized to your unique preferences and sleeping style that won't set you back $1,000. All you have to do is go to helixsleep.com slash Anna, that's A-N-A, and take their simple two to three minute sleep quiz. They will build you a custom mattress that will be the best thing you've ever slept on. And for couples, they even personalize each side of the mattress. Everyone from GQ to Cosmopolitan to the New York Times are talking about Helix, and once you try it out, you will know why. Your custom direct mattress arrives direct to you in a week, and shipping is completely free. Try it for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund you in full. So go to helixsleep.com slash Anna, and you'll get $50 towards your custom mattress. That's helixsleep.com slash Anna, A-N-A, for $50 off your order. helixsleep.com slash Anna. I actually would even, if, if Franken could come out and take responsibility for what he did and make that his mission in the Senate, even if he didn't resign, like that would be awesome too. What we need is some kind of model, some kind of space where people who think men who think of themselves as good liberals, good progressives, whatever, reconsider their own behavior. Like, and not just like make it about the other side and not just make it about uh, political points. But look at what they've done and not necessarily in public. Like a part of me is like too much of this is happening on Twitter and hashtag me too. And in all these articles, a lot of this should start happening, you know, in smaller uh, venues. Oh, exactly. Um, And and, and it's also a thing where, you know, it's just like men for the longest, just sort of, you know, the good liberal, as you say, like how long have they just been able to spend all year being like, you know, Donald Trump's a sexual predator, yeah. you know, like without examining the fact that like it's not just Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, it may just be Republicans who, when they're exposed, um, people will still go on Fox News to um, somehow say that um, that person is in the right. But um, I don't know. This this also that weird thing, you know, it's like we want to start having these conversations and then it's like, how do we even do we do we even think about trying to convince a whole section of people who just because of politics will immediately not care about this culture you know i mean i guess maybe it's getting women like 
Megyn Kelly and things who've spoken out about like their um, tenures at Fox News and the harassment that they've experienced. But it's, you know, you when you see someone on the right who's accused of any of this, immediately you know that every program on Fox News is going to be defending this person. Yeah. So I feel like it's hard to instill any sort of, you know, culture like that into men on the right. Mm-hmm. And there's the overarching problem with the president, right? Like that's just the overarching yeah. issue that informs all of this. And that is probably the thing that makes me reconsider Franken resigning is the idea that then his seat would be up in 2018. Well, Franken resigns now. His seat would be up in 2020. But if he resigns uh-huh. now, they'll have a special election uh, soon. And then that person that was be elected in the special election, I believe, would have to go up for re-election in 2018. Anyway, and even if it was in 2018, like, I mean, it would be someone else. Right. Yeah. And, and also there is just the the overarching like anger that um, why should we have to be held accountable when you're not accountable? Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I obviously don't want to be like, oh, you know, never hold any of us accountable. Right. Um, but um, I do think that the Internet strips all nuance from these conversations. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think that the solution lies somewhere in having spaces to talk about this stuff that's not necessarily super public. Um, not in private either, maybe. Uh, but these need to be have conversations that happen um, in spaces where people, for one thing, are allowed to get things wrong, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know how else to put it, but one of the I had a conversation with a good liberal guy recently, and who had some things he wanted to talk about about his behavior in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not anything terrible, but like some stuff that he, as a, very appropriately in the in the in the place we are now, wanted some feedback on, you know, what he what he should do or what how to look at that behavior now, right? Yes. And he's like, but I'm afraid to have this conversation because I'm worried that I might say something, you know, stupid or screwed up or whatever. And I felt like, you know what? You need to be okay with that. Remember, oh my God, this is exactly like the conversation you and I had about race. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. This full circle combo. Full circle. Um, Which is that you're going to screw it up. You're going to say something that offends me, you know? And Mm -hmm. you, you boy, good liberal guy who is white, by the way, um, uh, are are probably going to say something wrong, wrong, you know, however you define that. But if you if you want my feedback (laughs) and if you want to get to get better, like you're going to have to just be wrong, maybe. Yeah. Um, And, you know, people don't like to be wrong and people are sort of, you know, it's not true at the moment. But, you know, people are sort of feel this sort of witch hunt mentality, you know, a lot of men who maybe are like, oh, maybe I need to have this conversation um, are maybe afraid of speaking out because they're like, um, they don't want to lose their job, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I mean, I don't know how to fix that for people, you know? The solution would be to not have done what you did in the past. Right. Um, And to be like, you know what? Maybe you're going to lose your job. Like that actually, that's actually part of it is that, is that you, 
And when people are upset about this, I have to think about the millions and millions of women who have not applied for a job because of some negative experience they've had, who have been looked over for a job because of a sexual harassment experience that they've been a part of. Like, Mm -hmm. I also do think like if Franken resigns, he should be replaced by a woman like. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, and I think if he resigns and there's a special election, we should, as Minnesotans, we should be looking for a woman, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when when men complain about these co- these consequences, like they don't seem to understand women have been paying consequences for centuries for this kind absolutely. of behavior. Like it, it's going to be it's going to feel unfair. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to um, be unfair. No, and this is a thing that uh, it's it's very parallel to our race conversation. Yeah. You know, um, because this reports constantly come out about, um, you know, the different races of people who work in the industry. Right. You know, and it's always like, you know, the idea that like giving more women and people of color and especially women of color opportunities in Hollywood, um, you know. Men will feel like it's they're going to feel like it's unfair at some point <laughs> because, you know, the because the status quo before was, you know, that they would get everything. Yeah. You know, um, and even when the status quo isn't changing, you know, men feel like it is. You know, I had this conversation um, with some other writers online um, and um Arrested Developments, um, John Levinston um, chimed in, too, just about the fact of um, so many people are just sort of coddled. You know, agents in the industry tell their clients, um, white male clients, often, um, if they don't get a job, stuff like, um, you know, you were the runner up for this position or like, oh, you know, they had to go for a diversity hire Mm. just because. It's an easier conversation to have than to say what you wrote wasn't good enough to get you on this. <laughs> you know, and so there are so many when those numbers came out about the actual makeup of writers rooms in Hollywood, yeah. um, like a few weeks ago. Um, people were like, you know, here's this proof, uh, which is contrary to so many um male white writers I know, you know, who are sort of unemployed at the moment. And they're sort of walking around with this idea that the reason they don't have a job is because now there's this influx of like, you know, women and people of color who are getting hired just because they aren't white men. And it's just simply not true. Yeah. Um, And and the truth is, is if you've turned that around, you were hired because you're a white man. Every, (laughs) like, that's actually what's been happening for, you know, decades if not uh, centuries is that there it, you there was affirmative action yeah <laughs> and it was um, it was for white guys and people, <laughs> like that people sort of don't get that i mean the funniest one to me is the fact that um you know these recent elections where people were um like when we talk about like black voter turnout oh yeah oftentimes conservatives and other people um or even like some liberals you know like people who are on the bernie side um, would be like, why isn't Bernie getting these black votes and you're all just addicted to the Democrat machine or whatever, et cetera. It's the idea that like when black turnout increases for like a black candidate, like they did for Obama, it's always seen as some sort of negative, you know, because it's like, oh, you only turned out for this person because they're black 
Um, but it's also the idea that, well, you have spent centuries turning out for people just because they're white men. I was gonna, yeah, right. Exactly. You know? Like you white um, people turned out for the white person. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we haven't had an opportunity to even level that playing field. Yeah. And like when you talk about what's fair, it's like, you know what? Give it more than a few years and then we'll see, you know, if it's really fair. Yeah. You know, this one black president isn't, it hasn't changed the makeup of the Senate, which is still overwhelmingly white and male, you know? So yeah. it's like you're still fully represented everywhere else. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, and it's, it's just weird how much this conversation, you know, just sort of, it applies to everything, you know? Yeah, the, it the, does, it does. We have, It's a conversation applies to everything. And, <laughs> and I I think that the where we're both at is that it's, it's not, easy it's going to be hard and i think white dudes just need to accept that the conversation is hard they're going to make mistakes and it's going to cost them something and that's the third the third one is the thing i think they're really really resistant to yes because they um, don't think they've gained anything that they think they're neutral players a lot of like good liberal white guys believe they are neutral players in this in this you know uh action of and, course and they are not <laughs> <laughs> And and they need to be prepared to lose something. It's sort of how, I mean, again, the parallels to race are not perfect, but it's sort of how I feel about uh, reparations, mm -hmm. uh, which is that I have gained historically from black labor. There's no other way to put it, right? Like me, per me personally, me, mm -hmm. I'm tapping my chest, you know, um, because I have I have gained because historically, you know, black people in America did were not uh, allowed to own property and not given mortgages. And so my family grew, my family was able to attain a level of, you know, inheritable wealth. It's not a lot, but it was some, you know, that wasn't available to black people. So, you know what? Yeah. Like it's going to pinch. Yeah. You're going to feel a pinch. As they say. Um, and it's, you know, it's, yeah. Some people don't want to see that. And some people, you know, are like, that's the sins of the past. Can't we just get over it? And it's like, we clearly can't get over it. Um, uh, <laughs> When the sins of the past are, you know, marching through the streets, um, wanting their statues up. Um, that and the idea that if you even look at this past year, men who have sort of lost their jobs for some sexual harassment things, like maybe last year pre-Weinstein, um, so many of them, like, are back at work yeah, um, or get hired by some other thing. So it's like, you know what? You lose your job and it's like, chances are you'll have another one mm -hmm. in three weeks. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, <laughs> world's tiniest violin um, should get together. Um, they're needed. There's like, should be a symphony of tiny violins playing like throughout this year, basically. That's, that is, that is the soundtrack for 2000. 17 and we should wrap this up um i appreciate you coming on ira like uh when does your show happen on crooked um, media keep it from crooked keep media it, um crooked media's new podcast um it's coming up soon there'll be more details on what it's about when my teaser drops in december All right. um, so look Pe out for that people keep their eyes open and ears and again <laughs> uh, thank you so much ira thank you I have talked before in the show how much I love the parachute sheets, how much my husband loves the parachute sheets, that we actually, even though we got samples of the parachute sheets, we went out and bought more of them 
with our own money, much like you might spend uh, to get another set of these sheets because I, I love them so much. They are wonderful to sleep on. They're incredibly stylish. Their color palette is just really cool and modern. I happen to really love their pillowcases, which is a weird thing to fetishize, but I do love them in part well, maybe entirely because uh, they're not like traditional pillowcases, just that open-ended like, you know, envelope that you that you stuff your pillow in. Uh, they fit the pillow with a little like um, the slit is in the back, like you like you would put on a, a pillow sham. So it looks very neat when you make your bed. Although I do prefer the linen sheets because they are purposely wrinkled. So there's this nice combination of neatness and, you know, casual. They also make other stuff besides sheets, uh, which I've tried. They make bath sheets. And I do distinguish that from bath towels, which I believe they also make. But they make bath sheets that are, for me, a relatively small person, literally something that I could uh, use as a sheet. They're enormous. And at this time of year, honestly, like what is better than getting out of the shower and having a nice, warm, enormous towel to wrap yourself up in? Here in Minnesota, that is something that makes the winter bearable. So... Visit ParachuteHome.com slash friends uh, to get your parachute paraphernalia. Uh, ParachuteHome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. That's ParachuteHome.com slash friends. They offer a 60-night trial for the sheets. And if you don't love it, just send them back. No questions asked. They donate the returns to Habitat for Humanity. But I don't think you'll be returning them. That's ParachuteHome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. Bob Inglis is a former congressman from South Carolina, now the executive director of RepublicIn.org, which is RepublicEN.org. Basically, I wanted to talk to you as a kind of conservative whisperer. Um, You know, you talk to people uh, about climate change. The activism that you do is around um, trying to make a coalition to tackle climate change that includes conservatives. And so you talk to a lot of people that used to hold the opinion that you hold that wait that wait how do i say that you say it <laughs> <laughs> well uh, people that uh, yes have yet to hear the message of climate change because they haven't heard it from somebody that they trust and they haven't heard it from somebody that they think has their best interest in mind and i think that might give you some unique insight to talk to you know my listeners who let's face it, largely progressive crowd who are really struggling to understand what's happening now with evangelicals in the conservative movement, uh, specifically the allegations surrounding Roy Moore. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the polls. Uh, the one that's getting a lot of attention is the 37% are more likely to vote for more after hearing these allegations. And to a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. I can make a stab at why I think that makes sense, but I wondered if you wanted to try and um, give us a inside, you know, the mind of translation of of what what that number is about. Well, I I I wish I could. I don't I I don't really know that I have. I'm struggling myself to tell you the truth um, because this is a very um, difficult situation uh, for me is somebody that um, that uh, really believes that truth matters and um, right it hasn't been proved in a court of law but on the other hand um, the, these uh, these stories seem pretty compelling and so 
uh, Mitt Romney is right. It's a different standard in politics than it is in a court. So it's not like Roy Moore is being tried for these things. It's rather that in the court opinion, public opinion, he's being tried. And to me, the evidence seems overwhelming, like uh, what, uh, thankfully, Senator Mitch McConnell says, uh, that he believes the women who have come forward. Um, and so, um, but I, here's what I think is going on, is that people, I think it, within the evangelical community, may feel attacked themselves, that this is somebody who's carrying the flag for them, that has now come under attack by the liberal Washington Post. And so consider the source, they say, let's rally around our guy. He's got our flag and he's carrying it. Um, which is very difficult for me because he's not carrying any flag that I want him to carry for me. Um, and in fact, I wish he would... Um, uh, you know, get out of my life and out of my brand and out of my <laughs> out of my tribe. I don't. I don't want um, him as my standard bearer. I don't want anything to do with him. Um, but I think that you're talking to a minority member of that community when you're talking to me. Mm-hmm. I I know that I am, and honestly, I wouldn't have you on probably if if I, if you weren't. Uh, <laughs> Because as, as much as this show is talking about difference, I'm really interested in talking about people who um, uh, are reachable. I don't want to talk to somebody who's not going to change their mind. I don't want to talk to people who have never changed their mind. And I guess I want to, I thought you might give some insight into why it is that the arguments that sway me and even you and Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney you know, don't seem to be swaying a huge proportion of evangelicals. I think you summarized it pretty quickly. They feel attacked, right? Right. right. Yeah, they feel that um, their worldview is not uh, displayed on the pages of the Washington Post and other mainstream media outlets. They feel that they're given a short shift all the time. They're not given a fair, fair hearing. And so... They've got this rally around notion going on, I think. Um, and so they feel uncomfortable out in the mainstream media and they want the protection of their talk radio show, Sean Hannity telling them that, uh, you know, this hasn't been proven. Let's stick with our man because in the end, this is a binary contest and it's about control of the Senate or near control of the U.S. Senate. So it's sort of like the justification they made in their own minds when they decided to vote for the thrice married uh, Donald Trump, who um, they decided this was a binary contest between uh, evil Hillary and uh, uh, lecherous Trump, but at least, uh, you know, he'll get the right Supreme Court nominee is basically what they decided. Um, I, I think that's you know, selling one's birthright for a mess of pottage um, mm. and uh, really uh, pretty pretty poor thinking on the part of fellow believers. Um, they really need to think about what kind of statement you're making in putting someone like that in a position of authority. And so, um, and, you know, and I've, I've asked a question too, you know, isn't it interesting how a lot of very powerful and wealthy people are being met with consequences for their actions. 
um, in sexual abuse and um, use of their power and wealth. And I've just asked a question on my Facebook feed, um, what about the president? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at that Facebook feed, what you'll find is people responding very angrily in defense of the president. Um, and you wonder what set of facts they're using to justify their position. They, um, but And it's all about the what about them, which is a, a particularly poor defense, you know. Uh, don't, didn't we all learn that from our mom, you know, or dad, you know, if, if you... If you're caught in the act and you say, well, what about them? That never flew with my parents. I don't know if it flew with <laughs> with everybody else's parents, but it surely didn't fly with mine. Mm. Yeah. And also, uh, it's not the standard that Christians are told to. <laughs> that, that has nothing to do with how I understand the Bible's instructions on morality. There's no like, all you need to do is be better than the other guy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> There's a pretty, pretty firm, <laughs> pretty firm non-relative instruction uh, in, in in what your behavior is supposed to be like. Yeah. And I have, I have two questions coming out of this. Like, part of me wants to ask you. Of course, there is a through line between the evangelical vote for Trump and evangelical support for Roy Moore, and it is this idea that the, the other side is 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 even worse, and he at least will give us these things that we care about. Um, more than anything else, right? Pro-life being, uh, pro-life judges being one of them. Uh, he represents our, int- and also there's sort of a cultural thing, right? That, that uh, he represents me and and whoever it is he's who is on the other side is not me. It's a, it's not, it's a tribal thing. And in drawing the line from, from supporting Trump to supporting more, one does wonder where that, how, how deep that line will go, Right. Like, at what point would people say that's too much? Because the crime that Roy Moore is being accused of, I think people can pretty much agree, short of killing someone, <laughs> is a crime that is the most causes the most personal revulsion by most people, right? Like, it's it's pretty bad. It's not just like, oh, you know, good people can disagree. It's reprehensible. So I guess, do you want to say anything? Do you think that there's just no end to this? Is it, have we, have we sunk to that level of argument or? Well, yeah, I think that uh, here's a, here's something that I think your listeners could engage in conversation with conservatives about. Is it, is, is start from the position of, okay, uh, conservatives, you have criticized us progressives for being all about identity politics. And really, that's true. You know, I mean, um, it's you got the left handed lesbian group, you got the right handed lesbian group, you got the right handed gay guys, you got the left. In other words, it's all, it's all uh, hyphenated and, and split up, and there are all these interest groups. And that really is, I think it's a true bill about the way that especially Democrats have approached elections. And so the way to start that conversation with a conservative is to, is to say, okay, listen, a little bit of confession is good for the soul. Yeah, we have done that too much, haven't we, as Democrats, you could say, um, as progressives. We have done that too much, bifurcated the country, had all these hyphenated identities and say that that's what it's all about. But then ask the conservative, 
is that what you're doing now? And maybe what we need to do is all turn away from this thing. It's not that Roy Moore is one of you, unless you are a lecherous old man who is preying on 14-year-olds. Um, you know, uh, actually, he wasn't so old at the time, but still, if you're in your 30s and you're yeah. praying on a 14-year-old, you are lecherous. Um, yeah. And yes. so, um, you... You know, we, we need to maybe all level that, yeah, we've been a little bit too much identity politics. This should not be about, well, he's one of us. He's our, our, our devil. We'll take him, you know. Um, that's a, that's a really low way to approach politics, a way, a very low way to approach our world, our role in the world. And so let's all move away from that. I mean, in other words, I think there's a there's a conversation to be had there that could be started by the progressive with the conservative at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, Charlie's coming for dinner. Uncle Charlie is. And maybe that's the way to start it. You know, Charlie, you've criticized us in the past for doing too much of this identity politics. I think you're right, Charlie. And now let's talk about, is there an identity problem going on here with Roy Moore? We're just identifying with him because he's one of us, one of our tribe. That's a problem. I will attempt to bracket my own feelings about whether or not we are doing too much identity politics. Mm. <laughs> and for the sake of, of 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 playing along with this hypothetical, though, I do think that even someone who would defend identity politics could start a conversation by saying, I understand your criticism of identity politics. Yeah. Right. Like, even if I personally think that identity politics are, are an important way of understanding the world, I can say to someone that's, that doesn't think that, I understand what your criticism is. And I understand that it can go too far. How about that? Like, yeah. well, I, I will willing to grant that I, I, I understand your criticism. I think your criticism uh, has, has merit in some cases. Let's talk about identity politics, Uncle Charlie. <laughs> right. Um, and and what are the limits of identity politics? And do you think that's what's going on with Roy Moore? I love that this has turned into just a very specific instructions on how to engage on this. Yeah. That's actually really what I wanted from you. And I'm just going to cut down the conversation. So it's just that. And I, I, I was going to go a different direction, but you, did you want to jump in? Well, I, I just ask you, uh, give me an example. Um, and I know I'm, I know I'm arguing your point or arguing against your, your, uh, bracketing there. <laughs> Is it, you know, I was at, you know, I was at uh, Georgia Tech recently, uh, a group of people that were invited by somebody left of center. And so they all turned out to be her friends. So they're generally left of center. So at one point, um, uh, 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 this woman said something about uh, just a throwaway line that the judge, Georgia Public Service Commission is five white guys. And um, as a way of demeaning, depreciating their value, right? And so then I happen to know one of those guys is um, atypical in so many ways. He, I first met him as a homeschooling uh, teacher kind of guy, uh, organizer of homeschooler, uh, homeschooler parents and, and children. And he's on the Public Service Commission and he's very uh, forward thinking in terms of renewables in the state of Georgia. And so he doesn't fit the, the mold. In other words, he's, um, he, he's not what you'd expect. So as the conversation went on, I engaged that woman about 
him, this man that's the, the, um, the forward thinker. And I just left there thinking, you know, electrons really don't care whether it's that guy, the homeschool, formerly homeschool um, uh, coordinator, or somebody who's a left winger. They're just electrons. And so um, I'm not sure it makes much difference um, over the outcome there. And so in some cases, we don't need to say, okay, you know what, we got to have, we got to have uh, uh, perhaps all kinds of balance on this public service commission, because to do so is to turn the United States into Lebanon, where the, you know, the, the legislature in Lebanon has to have a certain number of this and that and that. That's really not been our approach. I mean, I can be represented. Um, I I can be fully represented by you, and even though you're female, I'm male, you can represent me. Uh, I don't need to have somebody that's exactly like me. If I do, then we end up in a rather, uh, rather uh, Byzantine system where you have all these groups that you have to check in with. Literally, the the right-handed straight guys as opposed to the left-handed straight guys. Uh, The ones with blonde hair, the ones with no hair, the ones with, you know, it it gets to absurd. Okay, I'm jumping in. I'm jumping in. I'm, I'm, there's a part of me that wants to continue talking about Romare and there's a part of me that wants to engage you on your uh, sort of parody of identity politics there. I, I, Again, my position would be if I was you're the conservative I'm engaging with, only we're engaging on identity politics now. I am willing to say, for instance, like I said before, that there are cases in which um, people who people might use identity politics uh, towards a bad end or might use it in a way that is counterproductive to the end goal. Right. Um, Or may uh, sort of. Uh, elaborate it into a into a kind of uh, specificity like you're talking about that's almost a parody of itself, right? Those things happen. I, I see that, but I also think that when that woman said it's five white guys, like I can't get inside her head. But if I were to say something like that, it wouldn't be to demean the contributions of those five white guys. It would be to just point out that is a a they their shared experience of the world is a fairly narrow viewpoint typically you're saying that yes individual in an individual case there's this one guy that's not a typical you know i guess conservative white person white guy and that's good i'm glad to know about that person you know and and of course people can be people can um be not who you expect them to be. They can they can transcend the boundaries that we have set for them uh, based on stereotypes. Sure, that is true. But I would argue that white men have so dominated our culture and our politics and our media and you know everything else that that is you know the the power structure of our country. It's hard to say how things would be different if it wasn't that way. You know. Like, and I think it's worth experimenting with with having different voices involved, even in conversations that are about utilities, that are about science. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? 
I wouldn't. And you don't have to either. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step of the process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. They show you where the factories are, what factories they're working with, and where they get their uh, materials. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Their essentials, like their Cotton Crew t-shirt, are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Uh, Just the other day, I found myself wearing an entirely Everlane outfit. (laughs) I had on uh, their mid-rise black denim jeans. I had on their crew t-shirt and I had on their cashmere crew neck sweater. And I have to say, I like, I, I look pretty awesome. And what's great about it is you would never look at me and be like, oh, she's wearing all Everlane. You would just see someone dressed in, I mean, you know, I would say stylish essentials. Uh, not so much basic, but essential. And for women, Everlane Stylish Essentials also include the Day Heel, which I have and love, and actually my husband happens to like as well, and he's very opinionated about shoes. They will take you from breakfast to cocktails without kicking them off under the table. And again, the cashmere crew that I was wearing the other day is classic. It's clean, cut, and comfy. Style and comfort can go hand in hand. And whether it's the Day Heel, the Basic Cotton Tee, or their Modern Snap Backpack, you will look great and feel comfortable without spending a fortune. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. That's everlane.com slash friends, everlane.com slash friends. Did you read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, that book? No, I didn't. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. It reads like a thriller. It's super interesting. It's about this um, black woman whose uh, cervical cancer cells were uh, cultured and turned out to be incredibly, um, uh, have incredible longevity and resistance. They are still alive today. Cells cultured out of this woman's cervical cancer are the basis for a lot of the genetic research that happens today. It's an incredible story. And it happened in part because she wasn't asked about whether or not, it's this weird like tragedy, but turned into a good thing. She was black, so she couldn't go to a private hospital. She had to go to Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins is a research hospital. Because she's black, the scientists didn't think to talk to her about what they were doing with her cells. So uh, they just took the cells and like cultured them. And she never knew about it. Her family never knew about it. There's a certain degree of like, um, what if they had been involved? How th- might things might have been different? You know, and and I'm saying that it sort of matters that it was a bunch of white guys making decisions about this woman's body, even though it was cells that they're talking about, right? right? So I just want to posit that there can be a time when even in unexpected ways, the exper- life experience of someone who is not a white person can be valuable, right? But that's not what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. <laughs> well, just just one one footnote on that is it you know here's the th- it is people do have different experiences. So I remember uh, my minority affairs council meeting one quarter where uh, a very uh, a very capable uh, State Farm agent asked me he said um, Bob what are the top ten issues affecting white South Carolinians. 
and we'd just been talking about pulling data, so I rattled them off, you know. Um, and then he said, and what are the top 10 affecting black South Carolinians? And it's a showstopper for me, because I said, well, Don, I don't know, but based on the conversation we've just had, I think fairness is somewhere near the top of the list. <laughs> and he said to me, you're beginning to understand and so, um, because, and what I learned from that encounter is that, yeah, I'm, I'm white. Um, you know, I grew up in a middle income family. I speak in such a way that I can sort of expect fairness and just walk around in the world expecting fairness. My friend Don has to establish fairness before mm-hmm. he can proceed, right? Because uh, he's black. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, there's a different experience, and that's very valuable for me to have that experience with him. But the thing that must be bracketed there is that if Don were running for city council, surely he could represent me. And likewise, I can represent him. Now, I do need to listen to him, and he needs to listen to me, but I can't insist on my representative being white, balding, uh, you know, my age, so there's no age discrimination, um, you know, have a wife and five kids. You know, I, I can't I can't get to that level where I say I got to have exactly that. That, I think, is what's going on. Actually, it's a bigger, it's really what's happening in politics now is we we are taking our excessive consumerist notion that we can go to the grocery store and ex- get the exact kind of orange juice we want or I want, and you can get the exact one you want with pulp, with no pulp, with calcium, uh, low acid, high acid. The combinations are rather extensive. And so that we take into politics and we are frustrated because we can't get exactly the orange juice we want. In government, you're probably going to get something akin to fruit juice, but it might not even be orange juice that you get. Um, at the grocery store, you can get exactly your orange juice. But in government, you're probably going to have to compromise to, uh, to apple cider or something. Um, and that's the way it's got to be if it's government. See, I don't know if Americans, I, I think that's a really interesting insight. And as a person who tries to be thoughtful about consumerism and has a you know, punk rock past that was very anti brand an anti-consumerist. And I will read some ads around this interview uh, with gusto, uh, despite my punk rock past. Um, So I really like the consumerism parallel, but I also think that millions and millions of Americans voted for cider this past fall. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and and they both on both sides, right? Like, I I don't know what, how we want to, you know, I'm, I'm going to try not to just say who is who's who and what kinds of cider or whatever filtered versus unfiltered. Maybe I don't know, um, but no one was voting for ju- their their personal brand of juice or very few people. Um, no, because the candidates were so clearly imperfect that even the biggest fans of both candidates, I think, would under you know bright light questioning admit to some serious faults, right? Yeah. Um, and even if their biggest fans wouldn't there's a lot of people who aren't their biggest fans. So I don't know. I think people are compromising in politics. And I think that um, if you want to say who's doing more, who is demanding a more perfect representation of themselves, I'm not sure if you can 
you know, say which side is do, is worse about that. Because I do think you're right that it's that kind of thinking. I want this very specific uh, kind of representation, at least. I don't think that Moore is a perfect, no one, no one thinks he's perfect, right? We're very, I don't know, maybe some people do. But the people who are supporting him right now, uh, I hate to go with the juice metaphor, but I guess we, you brought it up. He's not the exact kind of juice, but he's close enough and they're not going to try any other flavor. You know, like that's where they are. And you can argue that that liberals have done the same thing with other kinds of representation. But what, what I guess let's get back to the how do you how do you talk to to people who aren't necessarily more supporters, but people who are sort of in that um, to coin a phrase basket. Um your your idea of of starting with um, a flaw is funny. It, it's funny that you frame it that way, like starting with an admission of uh, a flaw. That's also something people do uh, when they're evangelizing, right? Like that's actually a kind of tried and true um, method of trying to talk to somebody about redemption, about their redemption. You start with your own. You start with your own flaws. Um, in recovery, that that's how we do it all the time. Like if you want to talk to somebody about getting sober, you start with your own story about getting sober. And that will definitely include a lot of um, mistakes that people may or may not identify with. But let's say you do open up with this um, admission that maybe identity politics is something we need to talk through is more the right um, person to represent your identity politics. Where do you go from there? Well, I think it's, I think if you give people long enough to, to talk in a, in a, with their back not pinned against a wall, they would probably end up turning on Roy Moore. Um, okay. It's, it, it's just a matter of giving them some space and having Uncle Charlie talk about it. And pretty soon, Charlie will be, talking himself out of supporting Roy Moore. It would be my hope, as long as there isn't a pressure on him. If there's pressure on him, uh, don't you agree with what the Washington Post said? You know, the Washington Post reported this. They did a lot of good reporting, Charlie. Um, that, that's going to make Charlie defensive. And so um, I, I think that, uh, you know, in some ways you got to give people space to... Um, and, and here's where we've got a problem that's going to be persist for a while. Um, and that is that, you know, the, the Trump voters basically decided to paint their house purple. They knew they were making a strange choice when they voted for Donald Trump. Many of them, some of them, you know, are actually Trump supporters. Um, and, and that's like you said earlier, people that you probably can't reach. But then there are people who were perhaps reluctant Trump voters who nevertheless decided to to vote for him and to paint their house purple. And when you do something really strange like paint your house purple, you've got to justify it in your own head. And you've got to say, I really like purple, don't you? I really like it. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you you made a more regular choice, like a light green as opposed to dark green, and you think, you know, I really wanted like three shades darker, and then you can say to your neighbor, yeah, I wish I'd gone a little bit darker on that tint. Um, But now that your house is purple, you sort of own it, 
And so that's, I don't know how it is that we let people, we, we need to give people some space to get, get away from that purple house that they've, that they've chosen in Donald J. Trump. Um, and I'm not sure how to do that, but there's some, something about letting them, letting Charlie up off the wall so that he can figure out how to backtrack and say, you know, I'm not for Roy Moore and, and I'm not for Donald Trump. Um, what I'm for is somebody's offering me solutions. Please, somebody come along and give me a solution. And another interesting parallel to uh, evangelism and recovery in what you're talking about, uh, which is a phrase I think I used with you last time we were talking to people about climate change, which is this is a program of attraction, not promotion. Meaning you live the values that you have, you share the information that the other person may want if they want it, but you don't do any convincing, right? Like you make the option to change your mind available, but you don't try to change their mind. And I agree just from personal experience, that is how people's minds get changed about things, you know, whether it's about God or about getting sober or about politics. Uh, It is when they are given space uh, to do that. No one has ever argued into changing their mind ever in the history of time, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You could argue someone into admitting they're wrong, but that's not the same as changing their mind. Right. And so... That's the question. How do we get people to do we, we People like me uh, want people to change their minds about Donald Trump. We want them to say, you know what, this is demeaning the office that we once held in high respect. This is demeaning our country. Uh, the Economist is right this week saying that um, America's power is diminished because of Donald Trump. Um, and it will take a while to be restored. So we want people to come to, I, I want people to come to that conclusion. But, um, yeah, I, I guess I've got to give them space to do that. But that is a, that's torture for me while we wait for that space, you know? And so, yeah. And, cl- and also the clock is ticking. Yeah. I mean, that's the other problem. I mean, I, and this is maybe where you have to draw a distinction between politics, which is about power. And relationships which are more, which have more room for persuasion, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, we need both in the world and we operate in both spheres. But the problem is that because politics is about, is about power, uh, the political solutions that we have to Trump are going to reinforce the fears and biases of his supporters. You know, like... I mean, people say this all the time, that what it's going to take probably uh, is some sort of defection or evolution on the part of people who are already esteemed by, uh, let's say, base conservative voters. I think that that's probably what it's going to mean, what, what it's going to take, because I think it's going to have to be a story that sort of like the ones we're talking about, where people are offered an identity that includes having been a Trump supporter, but now not being a Trump supporter. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's very good. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that is an identity we want people to take on is, uh, I was, but now I'm not. Um, and that yeah. needs to be a safe identity. Um, uh, so here I am now advocating identity politics. <laughs> 
you are. And it's see that there. I would just I would just say like there are times when it is a useful way to view the world. That is what identity politics is to me. Like it can be about like raw numbers sometimes. Sometimes like because sometimes raw numbers are a useful way to are a shorthand for interpreting a, a power structure's biases. Um, and also this is another way that that's useful. Yeah, like identities are useful in terms of how we um, give people space, right? Like that's what we're really asking for people is to consider becoming, moving from a person whose identity is just about this one person, you know, basically. And I do think this is a whole parallel discussion to more, right? Like we're talking about Trump, we could be talking about more. Uh, and, and into something, and into a new identity that is, that is, you don't have to abandon the old one, right? Because like, I know, I remember one of the most significant things uh, you, when, to me, one of the most significant things you've said about talking to conservatives about climate change is you have to offer them the identity of being a conservative still, right? Like you can't make it, you're going to be a climate change activist and you, and therefore liberal. Like there has to be some kind of space for them that they can continue their to, to believe that they are conservative and I won't say just not just believe it, but be conservative, but also accept this other thing. And in fact, like want to work on it. Right. Well, I think what we need to do is we need, uh, we need to recognize that human beings are, are uh, need the protection of other human beings. So we like the idea of being protected by our tribe. Um, the best tribes are those that say, but we can go experience the other tribe and learn from them how they do it. For example, if I'm uh, in my cuisine, if I'm if I just think that my the way that my mama cooked it is the only way to cook it, and I'm sort of uh, militant about that, I'll miss out on all kinds of other flavors that I could experience. I still might gravitate toward my mama's cooking, um, but. Uh, if I'm a member of a, a really wonderful tribe, then I'll say, yeah, let's try Thai tonight or let's try <laughs> something else because it's so interesting how these other people are making things. And so if you have that affect, then it's okay to be tribal, seems to me. Where tribal becomes a problem is where we cut ourselves off and say, we can't learn anything else from any other tribe. Our tribe is better than every other one. There's nothing we can learn from those other people. Wow, you sort of, you make so much sense. But now we're going to say goodbye. It was really, really nice to talk to you. And that is it for the show. I am going to give the info for Rain again because they're a great organization and because the way that news has been breaking in recent weeks, I think there's never a bad time to remind people that help is out there. So if you need to talk to someone about sexual assault, harassment, uh, or abuse, please get in touch with RAIN. They're at RAIN.org. There's an anonymous chat line there, and you can call them at 800-656-HOPE. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, 
or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.